The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. What glorious deliverance God has given to the children of Israel. Moses has led them out of the very camp of the Egyptians. 
they have gone to the Red Sea. And there the mighty hand of God cleaved in two the Red Sea, and they went through on dry ground. The Egyptians, trying to do the same thing, were utterly destroyed. The hand of God is not too short to save his people. Leads them now, for the first time, into the depths of the desert. What God has done, taking them through the Red Sea and closing it behind them, they are now in the wilderness and cannot escape. They have been brought into a place where they must recognize the truth of the wilderness. We, too, must come to a place where we recognize the truth of the wilderness. For this world is a wilderness, and it has nothing for the Christian. Now, why did God take them to the wilderness? In way of review, he took them to the wilderness first and foremost to show them the wickedness of their own hearts. To purify them, they have been baptized into Moses, into the Old Covenant. They will go to Mount Sinai, and there God will give the Ten Commandments to them written on the tables of stone. They must recognize their own wicked hearts. And God is going to use the wilderness journey to expose that. Now, the second reason for taking them into the wilderness is to make very clear to them the mercy and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. That they could understand that he carries them like a mother carrying a child. Now we come to today's message in Exodus, the 15th chapter. I'll begin reading for you at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur, or the wilderness of Shur. And for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Moriah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. The children of Israel come out of Egypt. They walk for three days with their families and their livestock, and there's no water. Now, I've been sharing with you portions from Gleanings in Exodus by Arthur Pink. Let me share again today just a brief passage that says it so beautifully, so powerfully. By the way, I have been, and I wonder, have you been disappointed when you've gone to a social gathering and find there such boisterous wickedness and your heart is grieved and you finally leave. 
A couple years ago, I was invited to a New Year's Eve celebration. I went to the celebration, and as people began to drink and become drunk, it was loud and boisterous, shouting and yelling. My whole spirit was grieved. I finally walked out, told my host, I need to head home. Thank you for your invitation, but I can't stay. It's too lousy, noisy for me. It's too drunken for me, but thank you for inviting me. And he excused me graciously. I'll never again go to a New Year's celebration like this. It was bitter in my mouth. I never forget. I wanted a car, a new car. So I made arrangements for an Acura Coupe, red with gray leather seats. It was a beauty. Week after week, I would go back to the car dealership and I would look at this car and then I began negotiating with them and finally we were able to settle on a price. I bought that car out of my own flesh. And God used that car as he took me into the desert as a whip on my back. And it was a bitter experience. I've never bought a new car from that day until now, and I never will unless the Lord directs very specifically and gives me the cash to pay for it. I'll never go in debt for another car. I learned my lesson. It was bitter my taste. I have made friendships, and I have thought they were of the Lord, but they were not. They were simply out of my own desperate need, out of my own lonely heart. And they ended up in bitterness in my mouth. I know of what Moriah is. Now, this is what Arthur Pink this precious scholar and pastor, wrote. Israel was now made to feel the barrenness and the bitterness of the wilderness. With what light hearts did they begin their journey across it? Little prepared were they for what lay before them. To go three days and find no water. And when they reached it, to find it bitter. How differently they had expected from God. How natural for them, after experiencing the great work of deliverance which he had wrought for them, to count on him to provide a smooth and easy path for them to go to the promised land. So it is, too, with with many Christians. They say they have peace with God, and they rejoice in what he's done for them. But they don't anticipate the tribulation that lays before them. Did not we expect things would be agreeable here? Have we not sought to make ourselves happy in this world? 
And have we not been disappointed and discouraged when we found no water? And that what we found was bitter? As we enter the wilderness, and just a brief aside, a Christian will never be able to enter heaven without first going through the wilderness of the world. As we enter the wilderness without understanding what it is, we thought that all that our gracious God was going to give us would screen us from the deep sorrows of the world. We thought that we were at God's right hand. But it's only at God's right hand are there pleasures evermore. So, as I've been saying to you, the wilderness accurately symbolizes and portrays this world, and the first stage of the journey foretells the rest of the journey. Expect in the place that does not own Christ nothing but rejection and trouble. How could it be otherwise? Does God mean for us as Christians to settle down and be content in a world which hates him and which cast out his beloved son? Never. Here, then, is something of vital importance for Christians. I need to enter the wilderness journey expecting nothing but death. If we expect peace instead of persecution, that that which will make us merry rather than cause us to groan, disappointment and disheartenment at not having our expectations realized will be our portion. Many an experienced Christian would bear witness that most of his failings in the wilderness can be attributed to his starting out with a wrong view of what the wilderness is. Ease and rest are not to be found in the wilderness. And the more we look for these, the keener will be our disappointment. The first stage of our journey must proclaim to us, as to Israel, what the true nature of the journey is. And the true nature of the journey is Moriah. It is bitterness. And what we try to do in making friends with the world only increases the bitterness of our heart. As people cut us off, as people refuse our offers of friendship, as we are scorned for our testimony of righteousness, as we are cast off as undesirables, as family members turn aside and say, you're just a bunch of old fanatics. Moriah is bitter. And it's plain in the New Testament that Christ was acquainted with sorrows. He was a man of sorrows. What were those sorrows? The bitterness of Moriah. The bitterness of Moriah. 
Now, as they come to Moriah, and they can't drink the water because it's bitter, it's poison, the people now begin to grumble against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? They're angry. They're grumbling. They're murmuring. They're saying, Why did you bring us out into this desert to kill us? Remember, these were the people that just three days ago were dancing and shouting and laughing on the side of the Red Sea as they watched the dead bodies of the Egyptians washing ashore, as they saw their enemy utterly defeated and themselves saved from bondage. Now, why did they not lay on their faces and praise God and ask Him for water? Because they still trusted in the human arm. And it was much easier to blame Moses than to blame themselves. We always want someone to scapegoat. We always want to say it's somebody else's fault that I'm in this situation. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And I'm angry. Look how they've treated me. Oh, it's time for Christians to grow up and know that this world is not our home. We are strangers and aliens in this place. So they grumbled. And Moses cries out to the Lord. And the Lord shows him a piece of wood. The Lord showed him. He didn't see it with his human eyes. The Lord had to show him the wood. This is what happens when we're walking in the desert, in the wilderness of this world, and we don't know how we are going to be delivered from this situation. And as we cry out to the Lord, He will show us what will give us deliverance. And what He showed Moses was a piece of wood part of a tree. And Moses threw it into the water. And when he threw it into the water, the waters became sweet. Now we know looking back on this picture that it was an absolutely correct picture of what was going to happen as Jesus went to that wooden cross and was crucified for us. That as he was crucified, the wood was thrown in the water, the water and the blood. And it was made sweet for us. The only sweetness that you are going to find in the world is the sweetness of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read, I've, I've actually written this out. I want to read what I've written out. Because I wanted to say it precisely. 
I want you to understand that that righteousness is not at the expense of grace. I want you to understand, how do I say this? How do I say this? Eternal life does not exist in us as an independent possession. I've been meditating all morning on this, and I've been crying out to God about it. And I want to make this very, very plain to you. As we come to Moriah, as we come to the bitter water, we need to understand that when the cross is thrown in the water, it becomes sweet, and that is life for us. The children of Israel would have died in that desert. They had been three days without water. It's hot. It's dry. They need water now. But the water is bitter. If they don't receive the water, they will die. I want you to understand this was a symbol of what must take place for eternal life to be granted unto us. And eternal life does not exist in us as an independent possession. In other words, I don't have eternal life as my possession. Life is only found in the sweetness of the water where the cross has done its work. Eternal life consists in oneness with God. It is participation in the divine nature. Now, we can speak accurately of eternal life as being given to the Christian as a gift. Romans 6, 23, and Romans, the fifth chapter, all talk about the gift of eternal life. But please understand, that gift can never be separated from Jesus Christ. Eternal life is Jesus reproducing in us his life because he comes and he dwells in us and we dwell in him. And separate from him, there is no eternal life. Now, I've been, I've been meditating on this. I've been, I've been praying, Lord, help me to understand more than intellectually what's being said here. What are you saying to me, Jesus? And this is so difficult because we as Americans have our separate lives from Jesus. We go about our business. We go about our pleasures. But we love Jesus. 
and we believe we have eternal life. What I'm trying to say to you is most people who call themselves Christians today do not have eternal life. Not in America. Because eternal life is total union with Jesus and there is no life outside of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? I am not free to simply go and live my life and carve out for myself a comfortable little space in this wilderness and say, this is my house, this is my place, I'm comfortable here. No, I can't do that. And I can watch this on television, and I can go here, and I can do that. As long as I'm not overtly sinning, I'm, I'm fine, I'm okay. No, you're not. Read carefully the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where we have to be only getting our nourishment from Jesus. And if we're not receiving the nourishment from Jesus, if we are not a branch that is in Jesus Christ, we're cast into a heap of other branches and we dry out and we are taken to be burned. In other words, there is only life in Jesus Christ. So eternal life never exists in me as an independent person. I can have the theological understanding of the gospel. I can have experiences with Jesus. I can have a sentimental attachment to Jesus. But that will not save me. Religion will not save me. I can stand on the principles of the gospel. I can defend them. That does not mean that I have eternal life. It means I have an intellectual understanding, but I am not in Jesus, and he is not in me, unless I abide in the vine, unless all of my nurturance, all of my food, all of my my survival is flowing out of the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Moriah was all about. Moriah was bitter because it was separate from Jesus. It was separate from the God of heaven. And it took the piece of wood, the cross, being cast into that water to change it and make it sweet. Now, is this life bitter for me? As long as I am hidden in Jesus Christ, this life is not bitter for me, even though there will be many sorrows. I've lost very precious people in my life, and I have wept over their death or their betrayal. 
but my heart was not filled with bitterness and anger. Because I expect betrayal and death in this life. It did not take me by surprise. I expect people will get angry with me because of what I'm saying. I expect people not to make this a very popular video. Why? Because so-called Christians today want to dwell in their own comfortable little American space with a picket fence around their happy yard, and they don't want to build the kingdom of God. They don't want to use their time and their money and their resources to build the kingdom of God. They want it for their own consumption and their own desires. And so they have their favorite TV shows. They have their favorite places and people. But it's not in Jesus. So eternal life does not exist in a person as an independent possession. Life is only found in Jesus. External, external life must flow through us from Jesus so that where we go and what we do, we do in the name of Jesus Christ. We do at the leading of the Holy Spirit. I just did something last night. And after I did it, I, I stopped myself and I said, wait a minute. Did I do that out of my own heart, or did I do that out of the heart of Jesus? Well, I immediately repented if I had done it out of my own heart. And now I'm waiting for the Lord to be very clear with me about, about whether that was simply out of my own desire or whether it was His will. I'm waiting on the Lord for direction because I won't do it again unless I get a very clear direction regarding what I thought was, was his will. Nine times out of ten, we do things that we think are God's will, but it's really our own heart deceiving us. I hope you understand. It takes a much deeper walk than I have with Jesus to be able to quickly determine his will versus my own heart's desire. I have prayed that through and cried over that, wept over that, fasted over that, and I continue to do so because I need the fullness of the Holy Spirit to be very clear. For I only desire to walk in the the Spirit of the living God. I find my life to be quite shallow. I don't want a shallow walk with Jesus. 
I want to be one with him. Eternal life literally consists in union with Jesus. It is a participation in his divine nature. Yes, we have the gift of eternal life, but the gift can never be separated from Jesus. When we separate from Jesus, we lose our standing before God. Eternal life is literally Jesus reproducing himself in us, making us into new creatures, filling us with his Holy Spirit, filling us with his glory. I want to read for you a very sobering passage of Scripture that I've been reading and meditating and fasting over this last week. 1 John chapter 3. You must take notice what sort of love the Father has given to us so that we may be called children of God. Because of this, the world does not know us, since it knew him not. So, the Apostle John is saying, look, you need to look very carefully at the love you receive in your life. You need to look very carefully at the love that you are receiving from the Father above, that you're receiving from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus. This love will not cause the world to love you or to know you because the, the world does not know Jesus. The worldly church does not know Jesus. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it was not yet made known what we shall be, but we know that if any time we may be manifest, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In other words, when you see Jesus, if you've walked in this love, if you have walked in Moriah and had the water turned sweet by the blood of Jesus, you have been born from above. Romans, the sixth chapter, read it carefully. Pray over it. Fast over it. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as that one is pure. In other words, he cleans out all of the connections of comfort from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. And he receives his sustenance from the sweet water of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to hear this, because some of you have been taught something very different. We need to know and understand that every pastor and every preacher and every prophet does not speak the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God for ourselves, and we need to understand it for ourselves. 
Listen. Everyone doing the sin also continues doing the lawlessness or the rebellion. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, I want to just touch this for a moment. There are some who say, oh, you have unknown sin in your life, Pastor, so you're sinning every day and everything you do is sin. That's not what Jesus is looking at. Yes, I fall short of the glory of God, but not intentionally. There is not an intentional rebellion in my heart against the Most High God. Therefore, there is not lawlessness in my spirit. I have repented of lawlessness. And when he points out an area of my life that is still lawless, by his grace I quickly repent. And that's part of what I've done this last week as I struggled with the issue of what are my rights? Do I have a right to do what I think I want to do, separate from Jesus? And my answer is no, I do not. You know, verse 5, that that one was manifest so that he may take away our sins. Indeed, there is no sin in him. Everyone who continues remaining in him does not keep on sinning. Everyone sinning has not seen him, neither has he known them. Little children, you must not let anybody deceive you. The one continually doing the righteousness or the innocence is righteous, just as that one is righteous. So in other words, if you are not voluntarily rising up in rebellion against the Most High, you are not living your own life. You have not gone out into the world to create your own little happy fence picket around your house where you can do what you want to do and still call yourself a Christian. If you have rejected that, and you are doing the righteousness, he is saying that you are righteous. The one continually doing the sin is out of the devil. Because the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, or for this purpose, the Son of God became visible to us, that he may destroy the works of the devil. I want to personalize that. The purpose, the Son of God, came and showed himself to me, was in order to destroy the works of the devil in my life and in your life. Jesus has shown himself to you in order to utterly destroy all known sin in your life, all rebellion, all lawlessness. All lawlessness is voluntary. 
everyone having born out of God does not continue to sin. You recognize that many preachers today say you can always, you will always be a sinner. You can never stop sinning. They're lying. They are going directly against the word of God. They do so because in their flesh they see no possible way of walking in righteousness. Now this brings me to a very specific point that I want to make clear to you. This was a great mystery to me. And when the revelation of this came to me, I want to tell you it set my feet to dancing and it released me from all bondage. There are two ways taught in churches today to be righteous. The first, you have to struggle against sin, and you are saved by a combination of faith and works. The illustration in one holiness church that I'm very well acquainted with in their book, The Great Controversy, has a diagram of a rowboat. And one oar is faith, and the other oar is works. So we are saved by faith and by works. They put it, faith is working. And as a child, my dad would say to me, Raymond, you have to try harder. Well, I tried harder. And I failed until I almost gave up entirely on the gospel. Now, there is another way the church teaches that you can be saved, and that is by faith alone in what Jesus did at Calvary. That at Calvary, they say, Jesus forgave your past, present, and future sins. That it's a finished work. So you don't need to be concerned if you have received Jesus Christ. You can never lose it. You're a part of the family. And as part of the family, you will never be disowned by God. Now, if you listen to men like Charles Stanley, they will tell you, yes, you should live a righteous life. But if you walk in sin, all you will lose is some of the rewards when you reach heaven, and you will lose fellowship. And so they say you have eternal security. Both ways are wrong. And I don't have time today to go into all of it, but if you will read carefully Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, it will explain in detail. Now, where does righteousness come from? Well, in Romans 1, we're told that righteousness comes from a source other than the law. So, am I saved because I said I would receive Jesus, and now my sins are covered because past, present, and future sins were forgiven at the cross? No. What was done at the cross is the provision was offered, the atonement was offered. 
But if one does not receive that atonement, if one does not enter into that atonement and be crucified with Christ, Romans 6 says you have no part with him. On the other hand, it's very clear that no one can be made righteous by keeping the law. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. So how is it that an unrighteous sinner can be made righteous? By turning to Jesus Christ. And in turning to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit convicts us of deep, deep conviction of our wickedness before God. And as we repent of that wickedness and we ground the swords of defense and offense, as we lay down our weapons and we utterly and totally submit to Jesus and we ask him to make us into a new creature, by his blood, We are born from above, and sin is removed from our life by faith in Jesus Christ. Am I saved by faith alone? Absolutely. I am saved by faith alone in the blood of Jesus Christ, in the atonement he made at the cross. As I submit and access that blood, confess my sins, and allow Jesus to make me into a new creature. It's not, as they say, imputed righteousness. It is truly imparted righteousness. It is regenerate. It saves us. It changes us. It transforms us. And now we begin to enter into eternal life in union with Jesus Christ as creatures made new by his blood, not by white-knuckling it, not by works, but by faith in Jesus. It is a work of grace. It is a work of grace that is performed in our hearts. And that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Titus teaches us that. For this purpose, the Son of God was made manifest so that he may destroy the works of the devil. Everyone having been born out of God does not continue to sin because his seed continues to remain in us, and he is not able to keep on sinning, because he has been born out of God. I want to come back. Eternal life does not exist in us as an independent possession. Life is only found in Jesus Christ. 
eternal life is literally being brought into union with Jesus. It is participation in his divine nature. We can refer to eternal life as a gift of God, but that gift is never separated from Jesus. It's not something that I possess in my own strength and in my own power. It is the divine work of God moving in my life, transforming me, restoring me, renewing me, directing my steps. Jesus then is literally reproducing himself in me, in you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now please understand, I'm speaking about the practical, day-by-day walk with Jesus Christ. Where you do not go off on your own and say, I have the freedom to go do whatever I want to do as long as I'm not committing adultery or as long as I'm not doing this or that. No, you don't have that right. You have been called by the Holy Spirit to enter into Jesus, into the depths of Jesus Christ. And there the bitterness of life is made sweet. There the harshness of the world toward us finds no place in our heart. For we are filled with the joy of the Lord. We are filled with his peace. We are filled with his righteousness. We no longer seek the ways of darkness. We no longer look at the wicked things and find entertainment at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have utterly cut that tree from our life, and now we only feast on the tree of life. I hope you understand what I've said to you today. I know it's taken me all morning just to think and pray and and cry to, to my father about this issue, about how often I have gone off on my own to create what I desired, not giving heed to the word of the Holy Spirit in my heart, but following the desire of my own heart. I can't do that anymore. My heart is hungry only for Jesus. I've proven how utterly ineffective I am as a pastor, walking in my own strength, in my own talent, my own guerrilla marketing, in my own... No, I have none of it. It is either flowing from the heart of Jesus, or I don't want it. You've come to listen to this broadcast today because the Holy Spirit called you to this broadcast. I praise God He did. And I pray He'll make these issues very clear and very straight in your heart. That you would not be deceived and you would not be concerned about anything of the devil or the flesh. 
Now, I want to thank those of you who've been helping us toward the end of August. We're already past the middle of August. I'd love to hear from you. Would you help if you consider this broadcast something that needs to go out in Washington, D.C. and over the Internet? Write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That again is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Now you can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find these videos there. You'll find podcasts. You'll find many different places where you can connect with us. And my brother, my sister, you can also give there. I thank each one of you who's done so. I love you. I'm concerned that you not walk in your flesh but that you walk in the spirit of the living God in the power of the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Well, we're out of time for today. We'll continue this story tomorrow. God bless you.